Welcome to episode 13 of the Farm Exec Podcast. I'm Michelle Miscali, Senior Editor of Farm Exec Magazine. And I'm Kristen Harm, Associate Editor of Farm Exec Magazine. Holy smokes, Michelle, can you believe we're on episode 12 already? So 12, that's like a whole year or something already. Yeah. It's like six months we've been doing this. It seems like just yesterday we launched this baby. Pharmaceutical Executive Magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights for the C-suite. So, Kristen, what are we talking about on this episode? Well, today we have Jeff Now, who is the president and CEO of Oyster Point Pharmaceuticals on the podcast, and he's going to talk to us about dry eye disease and clinical trials. I'm actually really excited about this because I recently learned that I have dry eyes, and it's, like, revolutionized my life to know this. So it was cool to hear about the advancements that are being made in the field. He also talked to us a lot about uh, the financial side of business and funding, and he has some really great tips for raising money uh, in a climate where there's a lot of people competing for funds. Let's take a really quick break, and then we'll come back with Jeff. Hey, Kristen. What's up, Michelle? Did you see this article on global health partnerships in the pharma industry? I did, actually. I edited it. Oh, I must have missed it on our website, but I was just scrolling through Instagram and saw it. Wow, it's a really good thing that you follow the Instagram account Farm Executive, or else you would have missed it. I would have totally missed it. That's why I follow Farm Executive on Twitter, on Instagram, on YouTube, and all of our other social media channels, which can be found at farmexec.com. podcasters. Today we have here Jeff Now, President and CEO of Oyster Point Pharmaceuticals. Hey Jeff, thanks for being with us. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, we're excited. Can you tell us a little bit about you and your company? Sure. So uh, Oyster Point Pharma is a venture-backed startup pharmaceutical company. We're located in Princeton, New Jersey, and we're developing a couple of different products um, for ocular surface disease. Our, our first focus is in the area of dry eye disease. And we have two compounds uh, that we're developing that are novel um, approaches to treating dry eye disease. As you probably know, um, many therapies out there to treat um, dry eye disease are delivered topically, uh, whether they be over-the-counter or prescription medication. And we're actually coming through a different route which is we're coming at the disease by leveraging the parasympathetic nervous system, which is our rest and digest system, and treating the disease via the intranasal route of administration. And so our drugs are delivered through a very convenient nasal spray. It stimulates the trigeminal nerve, which ultimately stimulates the various glands that make up what we call the lacrimal functional unit that lubricate the eye and um, result in tear formation. So um, let's dive right into some of the questions that came up for us when we were discussing having you on the podcast. In a climate where oncology and rare diseases get most of the attention, talk about what it's like working on a disease that doesn't get the same press, like dry eye, which is actually the focus of your current phase two clinical trial. Does it impact funding? Is it harder to get investors? Is it harder to get press? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that's, um, I think that's important to note is 
there we're in an age right now with CAR T therapy, with gene therapy, where we're really going through some transformative changes in how we address disease. And so this phenomenon, you know, probably happens every 10 to 20 years where we have these really rapid advances in medicine, followed by some periods of time where things maybe slow down a little bit. And then we have another period of time where we have these rapid advances in medicine. And we're kind of in that period right now. So, you know, A, uh, I certainly don't want to put dry eye disease to the forefront and say that, you know, as a company, we think it's much more important than something like cancer. And I, and I really embrace the technology that's out there, and I think it's fantastic. What I do want to point out, though, is, you know, this this is a marketplace, the dry eye market that is very, very unique. So if you look at the number of patients in the United States that have dry eye disease, it's estimated that over 30 million patients in the U.S. suffer from dry eye disease. Only about 16 million of those patients have been diagnosed. So we have many, many patients that don't find their way to an eye care provider. Then we have only about 7 million patients that have either tried or failed some sort of therapy and then those that are actually on an approved dry eye prescription medication is only about 2 million. So if you take that 34 million uh, patient market or so, really less than 2 million patients are actually being treated with therapy. So this is a massive market from a monetary standpoint. The products that are out there right now are at least billion and a half um, dollar markets. And so the, there's a really a, a large potential to treat the disease. And I don't think that there's many markets out there across all disease areas where you have this many people that are affected by the disease, but so few that are treated. And there's certainly a lot of reasons behind that. And so from the standpoint of Oyster Point, it, it really makes it um, a very intriguing technology from an investment standpoint because it's a big market, very undertreated. The therapies that are out there in the prescription landscape just aren't that good. And so lots and lots of patients that are looking for what is the next dry eye treatment. So we really don't have a problem with funding, and we don't really compete um, with some of these other markets because we're just in such a really big market. And so that doesn't really that doesn't play into our, our funding at all. I think we actually um, are in a really good place. Uh, with regards to finding funding. The other thing that's happened for us um, that I think is important is um, Shire has launched a, a drug about a year and a half ago or so called Zydra. And so they've really done this big campaign called I Love, which you've probably seen uh, on TV with Jennifer Aniston. And so that's really brought dry eye disease to the forefront. And, and a lot of folks now understand that this is really a disease. Hopefully it's bringing more patients into the clinic and uh, getting more patients seen by an eye care provider. Um, but that's allowed us to have some visibility as well when we start talking about dry disease, whereas maybe five or ten years ago, you know, people didn't really understand the disease uh, that much. And then the last thing that I'll throw out there is just, you know, we're all, probably everybody who's listening to this podcast right now is staring at some screen, whether it be their phone or the computer. So the incidence of dry eye disease in the world is certainly going to go up. So as we have more screen time, um, 
as we spend uh, a lot more time in, in front of the electronics, you know, this is going to continue to be a problem. So we're we're really at the tip of bringing something to the forefront of uh, the therapeutic option for patients, and uh, it's only going to grow uh, as a marketplace. It's so interesting. Kristen and I, as you were talking, we were looking at each other and, and just thinking the same thing about how um, it's not diagnosed as much. It's not You don't hear about it as much. And we both, when you said about the campaign, we were like, yeah, we saw that campaign, <laughs> but we didn't want to interrupt you while you were talking. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. No, it's a, yeah. it's a great campaign, and, and it's, it's somewhat of an agnostic campaign, and it's really focused on the disease rather than a particular product, but it's really brought a lot of visibility to the disease, and, and I think everybody in the space has really benefited from it. Yeah, that's a, it's a challenge, I, and I have a feeling that challenge might come up again of, of people not realizing it actually is something more than just, you know, my eyes are a little dry today or something. Um, so I have a feeling we have a question later on that that, that might come up as, as one, of the, one of the things, but... It's interesting also because I just had an eye doctor appointment on Monday, and I've been having an issue with my eyes for like the last two years, and he was like, why don't you try, uh, we'll try and make sure that maybe it's just dry eyes. And it's, I, I feel like I'm like living a different life now because, you know, I'm always looking at a screen, so my eyes are always dry. Yeah, you just made a lot of points that resonated <laughs> with all of us as well. Yeah, it's all clear now. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, and I think the other piece that people don't really appreciate is there's a lot of problems in ophthalmology, Um with regards to the, just the general population and their eyesight. And so most most people are walking around for one reason or another without the correct prescription. So whether they, are, they don't have the correct prescription in their contacts or their glasses, they've had refractive surgery and they aren't quite 20-20, or they have dry eye and the front of their ocular surface is not lubricated appropriately. And that's critical for your cornea to be able to refract light onto the, your retina. So, you know, you can, you can actually, it's not, it's not just a discomfort issue, but there, there can also be some problems with your vision associated with dry eye. And certainly, um, you know, you, you know what it feels like if your eyes are really dry and you're trying to read something or when you first wake up in the morning um, and your eyes are really dried out because, um, you know, you, you may have been out in a windy environment the day before or something, you know, your, your eyes don't focus quite as well. So, you know, we're all, we're all walking around um, at any given point in time, you know, potentially not 2020 where we should be. And to your point, you just went to the eye doctor. You know, my guess is, um, you know, your, your eye doctor appointment before this last one was probably not the year before, but maybe a few years before. So I know I'm a bad patient as well. And we often skip a number of years between seeing the, the eye doctor unless, you know, we're, we're wearing contacts and we need to get those filled or something of that nature. It's, it's so funny. We're, we're sitting here shaking our heads, yes, as you're talking. But, and we got sort of off topic a little bit. We apologize to our <laughs> listeners. Um, <laughs> but everything is what you're saying is true, and I think that our listeners will kind of, agree, you know, they'll be shaking their heads just like Kristen and I. So I'll let <laughs> Kristen get back to the next question. So, Jeff, what about when it comes to recruiting and retaining employees? So we hear stories, for example, where a scientist's mom was diagnosed with breast cancer, and that's why they're so invested in the disease. I imagine that you might not find that when it comes to something like dry eye disease. So what drives the passion for the science in this area? Yeah, that's a great question. So 
you know, one one of the things that I've been fortunate to be able to do with um, Oyster Point is I've spent a lot of time in my career almost exclusively working in ophthalmology, but um, most of the time been working on diseases of the back of the eye, such as macular degeneration or diabetic retinopathy. These are blinding diseases. And so, you know, we, we, we've been um, mentioning oncology a bunch of times throughout the discussion. And if you were to actually uh, there, there's some questionnaires uh, that I think the National Eye Institute may have sponsored out there, uh, or maybe National Institute of Health, but they ask patients, you know, from a health perspective, what are your biggest fears? And uh, as you can imagine, number one was cancer, and number two was going blind. So from an ophthalmology standpoint, although it's, you know, it's not as exciting and sexy as cancer would be, um, it's certainly uh, at the forefront of patients' mind as it pertains to being concerned about their health. And so I think uh, in the past when I've worked in retinal diseases where these were diseases where people lost their, their vision, you know, we had a lot of folks that worked in that area that were really passionate about being involved. Either they had a loved one that was, um, you know, had macular degeneration, a grandparent or, or, or a parent, and so they had that personal connection to it, or they were able to see, you know, through um, people that they associated with the the impact that things like diabetes have on the eyesight. So, you know, that it was a, it was certainly um, a lot easier to get people excited about those type of um, diseases of the eye. With dry eye, obviously, you know, you're not going blind. Um, you know, the, the discomfort is often seen as, you know, just a little bit of a nuisance, but it's not sight-threatening uh, for most patients. And so, you know, I think the thing that brings um, people to work at a place like this Oyster Point is many of my employees have been in ophthalmology for a long period of time. And so we've been working on, uh, you know, various diseases. So now coming to the front of the eye, you know, is a new challenge for everyone. Um, and I think that the one thing about Oyster Point that really is able to bring people into the company is it's just such a novel approach. So, you know, the first time you explain to people that, look, we're, we're going to treat this disease of the surface of your eye, but we're not going to treat it with an eye drop, and we're not going to treat it with an ointment or anything that you put on the front of the eye, but instead we're going to go through the nose People just stop for a second, and they have to really think about, you know, how in the world would you be able to deliver therapy for a disease of the ocular surface through the nose? And so once you start to explain, look, here's how your normal tears are formed by breathing through your nose, and as that air goes over the nerves in your nose, it causes the basal tear formation that we have, you know, while we're just resting during the day. And what we're going to do is we're going to stimulate that pathway so that then we can produce more tears. You know, it's like a light bulb goes off um, for most uh, folks. And so we have people that have been in ophthalmology before. We have people that have developed nasal sprays before. They certainly have never developed a product to treat eyes uh, from a nasal perspective. And so once you bring those two things together, I, I really think people um, have this sort of epiphany or this light bulb moment where they say, man, that makes a lot of sense, and I'd really like to be involved with it. So, Jeff, as you know, our sister publication is Applied Clinical Trials, which I actually work on in addition to PharmExec. So you're in phase two clinical trials right now. 
What do you think the toughest challenges are for companies who are conducting clinical trials, and how do they overcome it? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, you know, for me, um, as the CEO of Oyster Point, you know, one of the things that I worry about most is, is really timeline and the, the calendar. And I think with everyone involved in clinical trials, we're all looking to do things that are both effective, um, but uh, we, we are always concerned about the timeline and, and how quick we can get these things done, how efficient we can get them done. And I think one of the challenges when you're in a phase two environment is unless you're in a large company with lots of internal resources, you're really dependent upon many outside um, vendors uh, or partners to get things done. And so, you know, a, a story that I could share is when we were going into phase two, you know, one of the critical steps to be able to move into phase two development was we had to have some toxicology coverage um, on these compounds in animals to be able to support that phase two trial. And you go to the, the tox lab, and, you know, I think I went to the tox lab last July, and the first docket that I could get um, from them to do a study for me was in December. So, you know, the, the, then you sort of scratch your head and say, okay, what am I going to do? Am I going to sit here for six months and wait for this talk study to get done? Um, it's going to delay everything downstream. And so I think one of the big, one of the toughest challenges of clinical development just in general, um, and there's a million challenges that are out there, um, is really just laying out your plan and laying out your timeline in a way that you can efficiently get um, to the to the end goal, whatever that may be, whether it's a trial or whether it's the NDA, um, in a way that you don't uh, get delayed significantly. And so, you know, we, we've been fortunate enough to really put some forethought into it based on past experience. And so we've moved quite quickly. Uh, we filed our first IND in November. We're already through our first phase two study and, and uh, on the way to two more at the end of this summer. Uh, we have a second IND filed. So we've been able to move really quickly, um, but I think part of that is just really good planning um, and, um, you know, being very strict to the timeline as well. So I have a quick question about that. Um, given what you were saying earlier, we were talking about how, um, you know, patients don't realize, a lot of people don't realize that they might have dry eye or anything. Is patient recruitment, um, what is patient recruitment like for you guys? Is that a challenge at all? Patient recruitment throughout my career has always been a challenge. So when you look at dry eye, though, it's a little bit different. So in the past, when you're recruiting patients for a macular degeneration trial, you're really focused on an elderly population. And um, there are not that many patients in the United States with macular degeneration. On the flip side, with dry eye, you know, with 34 million patients out there, we could run um, a real quick radio or print campaign, which would have never worked uh, on the macular degeneration front, and have 60 or 70 patients walk through the clinic um, in a two- to three-day period. So we don't really have problems with um, patient recruitment in the dry eye space. The other, the other thing that, you know, as I, I stated some of those numbers earlier, where you have 34 million patients that are out there with dry eye, but less than two are on prescription medication, 
we don't have a lot of competition for patients that are on other therapies that would compete with our study as well. So, you know, we really are in a, I, I think, a, a unique place in pharma that I think a lot of people would envy um, where we have just a massive patient population. And so patient recruitment for us is not a problem. Oh, that, that's amazing to hear. That's wonderful. Um, so let's uh, take a moment really quick because I know we're getting towards the end of our podcast. Take a moment to circle back to talk about the financial side of the business. You have a lot of experience when it comes to fundraising. It's one of the things we talked about when we first talked before the podcast, um, and not just with Oyster. So when you were in medical school, did you ever think that part of your job would be raising money? <laughs> um, you know, can you tell us a little bit about that first time that you had to go before a group of people and ask for money? And the reason why we're asking this is we have, you know, a lot of biotechs and small pharma companies that are kind of just starting to go through this. So I'm sure they would love to hear some advice from a seasoned professional such as yourself. Yeah, so what I, what I would say is I certainly uh, never learned nor thought that um, part of my job would be uh, fundraising, you know, when I was in school. That was definitely not part of the curriculum. Um, it, it definitely did not uh, come up uh, in any of my classes, that's for sure. And so the first time that I was involved in, in raising money, you know, it, it is a little bit daunting in that um, it's a it's really a new frontier that um, you would not have previously associated, um, you know, the medical side of things while you're in school and you're thinking, hey, I'm going to be a doctor or I'm going to be a nurse or I'm going to be a pharmacist. You know, you're not thinking about the, the fun, pharmaceutical funding side of the world out there. And so once once you get out there um, and you start to raise money, you learn a, a couple of things. And one is that, you know, this whole um, world exists uh, in the sort of venture capital space. And so learning about the ins and outs um, of that arena, you know, is really interesting. The other thing is there are some just super smart people out there um, and so you, when you're raising money, uh, one of the things that I really like to do is when, when pitching, um, I love the question. You know, I, there are some just real smart people out there that you can run across. You know, we're, we're delivering a compound that's a specific class of receptors. I may walk into a meeting where there's a neuroscientist sitting across the table um, from me who, you know, did his Ph.D. thesis on this class of receptors, and yet I'm – you know, pitching them my business and I'm telling them about the ins and outs of this class of receptors and what we're doing with it, trying to raise money. And so, you know, you come across some really great people. Um, you get challenged with a lot of really tough questions in some case. And what I would say is, you know, the experience is you leverage a lot of things that, you know, you may have learned early in your career. And, and so one of the things I always tell people is when you're out there raising money, you know, relationships are important. And so we, you have to sort of break down those barriers when you walk in the room. You have to make people feel comfortable. You have to make people trust you that you are telling them the truth and that you are, um, you know, pitching them something that they should be interested in. And so, you know, I think that process, you know, I, I most of my past experience in being able to do that has nothing to do with, school or medicine, uh, it has a lot more to do with when I was in 
uh, you know, working behind the, the counter of a hardware store and dealing with customers on a day-to-day basis and being able to understand what people are asking you, sort of break down those barriers and create a, a relationship in a very short period of time. But the, the other thing is you, you have to come to the table with, you know, something that's really interesting um, from a scientific standpoint, and you have to be able to have that value proposition laid out really well. And so I think, um, you know, if I was to distill down uh, fundraising, you know, first and foremost is to be able to have this great value proposition. Um, and I've been lucky in, in all of my companies to, to really have something that we could go to the table and be successful in raising money because people believed in it and they wanted to invest in it. But they also are investing in you, and, and they need to believe in you. And, and part of that is building that relationship and making sure that they trust you right out of the gate. One thousand percent agree. Um, and we've heard that that uh, relationship aspect of things a lot on this podcast, and, and totally agree with it. Great information. Before we wrap up, I do have to tell this really quick story. The first time I spoke with Jeff, uh, I asked him what his role at the company involved. And without hesitation, Jeff, you said to me something like, well, you know, I go get coffee, I clean the coffee, the office coffee cups. I didn't even know how to respond to you. I just started laughing. Um, and we laughed about it, but it actually makes a really good point that in a startup such as your company, you do a little bit of everything, uh, no matter what your job title is. And I just think that's a sort of an interesting way to go into the topic of when we talk a lot about this at FarmExec, and it's always worth repeating on our end, um, for those coming out of a larger pharma company into a small startup like yours, it can be a culture shock. So what advice do you have on how to make that leap to a success, you know, make that leap a successful one? Yeah, and and I think that um, one of the things that is important to note is um, I think think for many people that are taking that leap, um, coming from a, a larger company and, and moving into a small startup, you know, it, it's it's really it's really that first step that's the hardest. It's getting your brain wrapped around: Am I going to walk away from you know my comfort zone? Am I going to step out? Um, there's a lot of questions. You know, am I going to be busy? Am I going to know um, you know what to say? Um, am I going to have to do things that I don't know what what I'm doing on certain days? And I think that taking that first step and saying, okay, I'm going to walk out of this, you know, very comfortable position and I'm going to go into a small company is probably the most important um, step in the process. After that, you know, I think, you know, I have at Oyster Point uh, a mix of folks that have been involved in small companies and I do have a couple of people who just come out of large companies. And I can tell you, you know, what I see with them is the, in the beginning, you know, they're very used to um, delegating many uh, of the tasks to other people on their team. And so, you know, if you take a, a marketer, for example, um, they're certainly not trying to figure out who's going to build the website. They're asking you know, uh, an agency to go do that, or they're um, asking someone on their team to go figure out who's going to do that. And so there are a couple steps removed from it. So even though they're involved with that uh, building of the, the company's website, their hands are not in it. Whereas here, you know, 
you walk out, you go get a, a GoDaddy account, you set it up yourself. Um, you know, I think our first website looked like uh, an eighth grade science project that I put together. And so, you know, but you you sort of keep moving forward and forward momentum is, is really important for these folks as well because you often have to coach them in a way and just say, look, um, I know you're you're sort of struggling to get acclimated um, because you don't have this big group of resources around you that you did before, but keep pushing forward and keep moving um, in that direction. And pretty soon it clicks. It clicks um, and you see them go, you know what, I don't need this team of people to get this done. I can get it done very quickly and efficiently and cheaply just by myself or maybe with one small outside vendor. And so that process takes a little bit of time, but I often see people transition from the big, large company mindset to the small startup mindset, and they love it. And, you know, I I, I have the, the luck of being in both uh, big and small companies. You know, this is this is kind of where uh, I like to be. Um, I, I, I was at a – I spent some time at Genentech, and I love that company, and, and there's great things that happen there. But I'm definitely a startup person um, at the core. That is so great. Thank you so much, Jeff. We're just really excited that you were able to take some time out of your schedule to be with our listeners today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you for having me on. And now it's time for this week's leadership tip from Pharma Execs. So this is Jeffrey now. I'm the president and CEO of Oyster Point Pharma. And if I was to um, share one leadership caveat, it would be that you want to be able to instill trust in your team. You want to be able to allow your team to feel as if they're being heard and if they're have them um, be able to contribute to the team. And so you really want to be, one of my rules of thumb always is, be the last one to speak. So hear their side, listen very well, um, don't chime in. Once you've gone through the team, you know, then, then bring your opinion to the table. But allow them to contribute, allow them to feel like their voice has been heard, um, and usually it makes for a better decision in the end. Thank you guys for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's Farm Exec Podcast. We are always pleased to take you behind the headlines, provide expert tips from industry leaders, and give you an inside look at what the Farm Exec staff is working on. Remember that you can always find us on the web at farmexec.com, on Twitter at farmexec, or on Instagram at farmexecutive, and on YouTube. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of Farmexec, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions, please email editorial director lisa.henderson at ubm.com. And for sponsorship opportunities, please email group publisher Todd Baker at todd.baker at ubm.com.